Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Hey, grab a seat. Well, you guys already are, so cool. Just do you, man. Just do you. Uh, I'm Pastor Peter. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH. Uh, we're so excited that you're with us today, especially if you're new. We're, we're really excited you're here. Everybody who's been here, we're just mostly excited that you're here today. Uh, we're, uh, I'm just kidding. We're continuing on a series called The Bible Doesn't Say That. And last week, we talked about, uh, we, we talked about the first um, of kind of these sayings that have made their way into Christian vernacular. Right, so last week we talked about the idea that God helps those who help themselves. And for most of us in here, we're like, yep, that's scripture, and it's not. (laughs) Um, And so if you missed last week and you're like, no, I disagree with you, it's cool. We recorded it. You can go listen to it uh, (laughs) from last week. Uh, That's on our website, by the way. You can download that onto uh, onto your podcast on iTunes and that sort of things as well. But but we kind of kicked off this series in that way. Now this week we're going to take a, a little bit of a deeper dive uh, theologically. And so for those of you who are like, man, I just really need my brain to be engaged today. Great, we're going to dive in deep. For those of you who are like, look, I haven't had enough coffee yet this morning. This is going to sail straight over your head. So just wait for the landing. We'll get communion, and you guys will be okay. You guys will be set for the end of the whole thing. Okay, cool, cool. So this week, though, the axiom that we're going to be talking about is, uh, is not nearly as well known, but it is still pervasive and something we really do need to talk about. And that axiom is obedience always leads to financial blessings. Obedience to God always leads to financial blessings. And some of you are thinking, well, that's, that's pretty obvious that that isn't in the Bible. But let me paint a little bit of a picture for you regarding how people get caught up in this bad theology. Hey, oftentimes, people come to church at some point in their lives because they simply have nowhere else to go. They're looking for answers. They don't know where else to turn. And so because they don't know where else to turn, they turn to church. Think about churches after uh, the attacks on September 11th. Man, churches were overflowing, right? There's, I was reading about um, uh, a pastor, his name is Tim Keller. He was a pastor uh, at a church in New York and his church uh, went from 2,800 people one weekend to 5,600 people the following weekend after the attacks, right? Because people are searching, they were searching for answers. They're searching for hope and meaning and just trying to find something to help, to help them out of their sadness and help lift them out of their mourning for what had just happened to their country. And some polls has uh, uh, said that attendance in church went up 44% in, in America, went up 44% the Sunday after the attacks went down, right? So people come to church searching for answers. And maybe at some point you personally came to church looking for answers because you were seeking something more than what you had. Maybe you came at some point because a family member was diagnosed with something that was incurable. Maybe at some point you came to church because your marriage was shot 
or your kids were completely out of control. Maybe you simply recognize your inability to do life on your own. Whatever it is, oftentimes people begin coming to church because of the hole that they are aware exists in their life. That's why people oftentimes walk in to the church doors. Well, another thing then, on the, another thing on the list of things that bring people into church is the financial heartache that people often have. I mean, finances is, what is, the, is the main cause of divorce. Obviously, this is an issue in America. People who can't figure out how to climb out of that cycle of paycheck to paycheck or even, even beyond that, they've maxed out their credit cards. They don't know where their next mortgage payment is coming from. They don't know how they're gonna be able to get food on the table for their kids. And so because of that, because of the state of their finances, what they have decided to do is, is come to church. I have no other answer, so maybe God can answer this for me. Maybe God then can take care of this for me. They feel like they have exhausted all of their options. And because of that, they then turn to God for financial health. Now, depending on the church then that they find themselves in, they, they probably hear one of two things, one of two different theologies. And hopefully they find themselves in a church like ours that teaches sound biblical principles regarding money. We regularly offer Financial Peace University. That's the, the Dave Ramsey class, right? That's driven, biblically speaking, I mean, over and over and over again. It it's consistently digs into the word and, and, and it's phenomenal. My wife and I have gone through it. We do our best to abide by kind of those strategies and that sort of thing and it's a helpful thing. However, there are a lot of people who get sucked into a bad theology that oftentimes is known as the prosperity gospel. Some of you have probably heard it in here. At some point in time, people realize how much money actually comes through churches. Right at some point, man, man, people who are schemy tend to just follow where there are a lot, where there's a lot of money going. And so, even if you look at our annual budget, we operate at about 1.1 million dollars annual budget. And so, when you put it in those terms, you're like, man, 1.1 million dollars. If someone schemy got in there, they could really take advantage of that. Yep, they could. And that's exactly what has happened, specifically with the prosperity gospel. And obviously, the bigger the church, the more money there is to come through that church. And so because of that, a theology was born that focused on God giving man material blessings. And it's known by a lot of different names. The prosperity gospel is kind of the ones, the name that people use who are not a part of the prosperity gospel, right? So prosperity gospel is one of them. Health and wealth theology is one. Name it and claim it theology is one. But the name the pastor of the, the name that the pastors uh, give uh, to this type of gospel, they call it the word of faith movement. So it sounds great, right? Word of faith movement. How can it be bad? It's word of faith, man. We're putting, we're putting our money where our mouth is, literally speaking. Well, word of faith movement. And as we're gonna discover today, the word of faith movement is a complete and total perversion of what sound theology should be teaching us. 
I don't want to go too far into its theology, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of the entire thing, okay? So the prosperity gospel, it centers really around four main parts of theology. The first one is the Abrahamic covenant is a means to material entitlement, okay? The Abrahamic covenant is a means to uh, material entitlement. The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant made from God to Abraham. We find it in Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three. It says this, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so really what this theology then is doing is saying, hey, look, we are descendants of Abraham. Based on this Abrahamic covenant, that means that all of us are gonna be blessed. Now, it doesn't talk about specifically financial blessing. It doesn't talk about material blessing. It just says that we're gonna be blessed. And so these, these preachers, these health and wealth preachers, what they do is they just distort just a little bit. And so if they can distort it just a little bit, they can say, hey, look, we're supposed to be blessed. Scripture tells us in the Abrahamic, all the way back in Genesis, that, man, we are gonna be blessed. And then we'll get into kind of how they do it. But the prosperity gospels are, are, are saying that the primary purpose then of this covenant was for God to bless Abraham materially. You know what? This is what God was telling to Abraham. And since believers are now Abraham's spiritual children, we've inherited then these financial blessings. As Kenneth Copeland, he's, he's a, a health and wealth preacher, wrote in a, in a book in 1974 called The Laws of Prosperity. So if you want a good laugh, you could pick that one up. He writes, since God's covenant has been established and prosperity is a provision of this covenant, you need to realize that prosperity belongs to you now. Man, he sounds like a used car salesman, right? Like, so right now you can get this. And then they push into Galatians 3.14 then in the same kind of area. It refers to the blessings of Abraham that come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. But these teachers, they, they always ignore the second half of the verse of Galatians 3.14, where it says that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so it's not talking about material possessions. So while these teachers are pushing people towards the idea that God actually owes us something, the truth of what Scripture is saying is, is toward the spiritual blessing of salvation, not the material blessing of stuff. The next reason this is bad theology is they tell us that, that Jesus' atonement extends to the sin of material poverty. That's kind of the second piece of this whole thing. The view that they have regarding financial duress is seen as, as sinful even. And because of our security of salvation, if we simply have enough faith, if we simply have enough faith, we'll be, giving, we'll be given financial prosperity. Christ dying on the cross not only saves our souls from eternity, it also allows for a financial blessing on earth. That's really what they're driving out here. And, and they get here by twisting 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
Man, that sounds, that, I mean, reading that in, you know, in a, in a cave, you can get there from that, right? Like if you completely and totally isolate that scripture on its own and don't read into context and only read that one verse and say, hey, Jesus came to be poor so you could be rich. Like, sweet, I can be rich. All I have to do is follow, like I'm gonna accept Jesus in my heart, have some faith and I can drive around in a Lambo, done. I'm in, right? And really that is what these people are preaching on a consistent basis. Why wouldn't you wanna believe that type of theology? Why wouldn't you wanna believe that? The truth about this, though, is that Paul in this context is actually talking about giving money away. He's not even talking about receiving money. It's evident, a few verses later, verse 14, it actually says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. So Paul's saying like, look, hey, there's gonna be people in this world who, man, they can make tons and tons and tons and tons of money. I have friends like that, super jealous of those friends, man. That's me, you know, confessing my sins in front of everybody. I'm coveted, covetous in that area of my life, okay? But they make money hand over fist. And what they do with that money is they just consistently give it back away to people and bless people and bless people. And maybe there's, there's people like you or people like that in here today. Maybe you're one of them who's like, you know what? I've been blessed. God's given me a good job. He's given me a good business acumen. And so because of that, man, I've made a ton of money and I get the opportunity to then just bless people and give it away and give it away and give it away. And that's really is what, what Paul was driving at here. The next piece is where a lot of my frustration lies in the health and wealth of prosperity gospel. It's Christians give in order to gain compensation from God, right? And this one really frustrates me because I understand the idea of bad theology and, and that sort of thing. Like I can understand the idea of misinterpreting scripture. They read something in a vacuum and come out of the other side thinking they you know, can't use the restroom on Mondays or something like that. Like I get, I get that poor interpretation. But this piece is incredibly frustrating. This is where prosperity preachers are ripping off their followers and getting rich because of their authority in their lives and terrible teaching and bad theology. This is where it is. So really one of the most striking characteristics of the prosperity theologians is their fixation on the act of giving. I mean, it is a fixation. We're, we're urged to give generously and are confronted with pious statements like, true prosperity is the ability to use God's power to meet the needs of mankind in any realm of life. And we've been called to finance the gospel to the world. Now, these things appear good. They appear praiseworthy. This emphasis on giving, though, is built on motives that are anything but good. They're actually terrible Motives. The driving force behind this teaching on giving what prosperity gospel uh, theologian Robert Tilton referred to as the law of compensation. And they get it by, by twisting Mark 10.30. Mark 10.30 says this. We'll fail to receive, uh, uh, sorry, my notes got cut off. We'll fail to receive 100 times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions in the age to come in the eternal life. Christians should give generously to others because when they do, God gives back more in return. And this in turn leads to a cycle of ever-increasing prosperity. It never stops. Gloria Copeland, she's a proponent of the prosperity gospel. Her husband is Kenneth Copeland. Maybe you've heard of him. His name's a little bit more famous. 
But this is what she writes. She puts it, give $10 and receive 1,000. Give $1,000 and receive 100,000. In short, Mark 10.30 is a very good deal. It's evident then that the prosperity gospel's doctrine of giving is built on faulty motives, where Jesus taught his disciples to give hoping for nothing in return. That's in Luke 6. Prosperity theologians teach their disciples to give because they will get a great return rather than simply giving out of obedience to God. And by the way, if you ever look at, at prosperity gospels and their income and you can look them up, man, there's, there's one guy right now who's trying to finance his third jet um, and he's trying to get, not finance, he said, well, the church is gonna finance it, um, but he's trying to get his third jet and he needs this jet so he doesn't have to, his, his second jet wasn't good enough because he has to make a pit stop between there, like between where he leaves, I believe it's in Texas, he has to stop in New York to gas up before he goes to Europe. Right, so he's like, well, with his new jet, I can just go straight to Europe and not have to stop and fill up. It obviously makes sense, totally good use of funds, right? Also, one guy's name, this, I love this, one guy's, one of the prosperity gospel preachers' name, his name is Creflo Dollar. I'm like, come on. <laughs> really, is that a stage name, bro? Like, is that what you did? <laughs> Give me a break. Anyway, so the fourth thing, prayer is a tool to force God to grant prosperity. Prayer is a tool to force God to grant prosperity. Prosperity gospel preachers often note that we have not because we ask not, right? That's in, that's in James chapter four, verse two. They encourage us to pray really for, for personal success. James 4, two, it says this, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get, away, get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you don't ask God. Right, and again, it's just a small distortion. It's a small distortion that has, that has really led millions and millions of people into this prosperity gospel theology. And we could sit in here, we could laugh, we're like, really, he's financing a plane? Yeah, he is. And the hundreds of thousands of people who are doing it for them are convinced that this is good theology, that this is sound theology. And so prayer being a tool to force God into this, into prosperity, prayers for personal blessing aren't inherently wrong. Of course they're not, right? God wants, like, like God wants us to talk with him, but the prosperity gospel's overemphasis on man turns prayer into, into a tool believers can use to force God to grant their desires. It simply says, hey, if you do this, it, it changes the focus from prayer being on God to prayer being on man. That's essentially what this is doing. The truth about all of this though, those, uh, those four things, the truth about all of this though is that, what we're, and what really what we're gonna unpack today is this. If you're a Christian who's only in it for material blessings, you're really gonna be disappointed. I mean, if, if you're here hoping that, man, when you leave, you're gonna have a $100 bill in your pocket rather than a $10 bill, sorry. It's not gonna happen. Hopefully it actually went the other way around. Did we already take offering? Offering's done? Dang it. Just kidding. Just kidding. Everybody hear me, that was a joke. I'm not, okay. But this is evidence really in Paul's life. And we're gonna take a look at Paul's life. In 2 Corinthians specifically, Paul, chapter 11, he, man, let's just, we're gonna read through it. We're gonna flavor of what following Jesus is actually all about. 
Okay, so 2 Corinthians 11, it's 16 to 33. We're gonna read straight through it. Um, and so if you need a pause or a break or whatever, it's on the screen, but you can also flip to it in your Bible. He writes this, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. So Paul's setting the stage here. He's like, look, the world boasts. Let me tell you what it is that you should actually be boasting about. Let me boast in myself for a second. Verse 19, you gladly put up the fool since you're so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploit you, exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Man, Paul, this guy, he had it made in the shade. There was no reason for Paul to follow Jesus unless... Jesus was absolutely real. Paul had status and he had money, an easy life ahead of him. And rather than just keeping to himself and being a good little Jewish leader, rather than doing that, he encountered Jesus. And his lot, as we can see, was not financial blessing. It was not material things. It wasn't even blessing on this side of eternity. It was torture and eventually death in order to proclaim the name of Jesus. So Paul isn't getting rich. The disciples didn't get rich. Stephen, the first martyr, didn't get rich. Modern day martyrs aren't getting rich. We find here that the opposite is actually true. Paul is actually even proud of it, starting in verse 30. He said, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascus guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. If Paul was worried about being rich materially, Paul chose the wrong profession. He decided to put his faith in the wrong God. 
because all Paul was dealt was pain and strife, but he continued to press on, which really is the incredible piece of the entire story. See, Paul's contentment, his area of boastfulness wasn't because God gave him every material possession he could fathom. It was because all he needed was Christ for contentment. In short, contentment isn't found in things, it's found in Christ alone. Contentment is the, it's an elusive commodity today. In fact, much of the business world works really hard to breed discontent so we will actually buy their products. This actually started shortly after World War II. This idea of planned obsolescence, right? That eventually something would become obsolete so we're not gonna build things as well as we used to so people have to continue to buy more things, right? So tech companies have this, I mean, they have this nailed, right? I mean, between their advertising and the fact that, hey, you know what, I'm an Apple guy. Quick poll, Apple people, who, who are the Apple peoples in the room? Yeah, I see the iPad being raised over there, that's great. Okay, Apple. okay, everybody else in the room? Anybody else? Okay, so everybody else, you're like, how dare you? No, if you're not an Apple person, really, you're just everybody else, okay? But tech companies, just kidding, tech companies have this thing pegged, right? I'm convinced that when, when a tech company but we'll, we'll say Apple. When Apple releases a new product, like when Apple comes out with their next iPhone, man, I'm convinced there's a switch that they flip that makes my phone go way slower than it used to go, right? Like all of a sudden I'm like, man, this isn't loading. I'm discontent, I'm angry. I'm like, look, Sarah, this is obviously the will of God for us to be able to get these new phones. We gotta get this taken care of. <laughs> no, but, but really, businesses drive at this idea of discontent in order for us to buy new products. Casinos, they show us pictures of what we could do with the winnings of the lottery. Man, if you, if you came and played our slot machines, man, you're going to win $100,000, right? They love showing those things. Man, let me get another example of sports, right? I love the financial side of sports. I think it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating how rich these guys are, okay? I think it's fascinating. Again, maybe that's that sinful nature coming out of me again. I'm like, man, if I could just make the league minimum. Um, no. But in sports, your contract is no longer a matter of making a sufficient living, Right? That's not what this contract is anymore because got like bullpen catchers in baseball are making more than a sufficient living. Right? It's no longer about that. Contracts are no longer about needs. They're about how much you get compared to the other guy. It's constantly being driven up and up and up. An athlete who gets a multi-million dollar long-term contract this year will want to renegotiate in a couple of years because others are getting much more than they are. Man, if anybody, anybody followed the Manny Machado, Bryce Harper free agency, like baseball free agency this, this summer, these are two guys who are just, I mean, they're both young, they're 26, their talent's off the charts. Both of them are incredible athletes. And there was like this staring competition between the two of them as to who would sign first because whoever signed first, the second one was most likely gonna make more money, right? It was really a gauge, a barometer for them to be like, okay, how much are you making? All right, sweet, I'm gonna go make 100 million more than you are now, right? And then Mike Trout showed up and blew everybody out of the water, which was phenomenal, by the way. But it's not about money anymore. 
It's about significance. The problem with this mentality is that you're never satisfied. We are never satisfied. And if you're not satisfied, you're not able to enjoy life fully because you feel deprived. You feel like you need something more, that something is owed to you in some way. And one of the things that Paul exemplifies here is the same thing that's found in Philippians 4, 10 to 13. He says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now that last verse really is pulled out of context a lot of times, right? That you're like, you know, weightlifters who put on too much weight, like I can do all things, right? It's not what this is actually talking about, okay? It's the idea that, man, I can find contentment regardless of where I am. I really can. And I can find it through Christ alone because obedience doesn't lead to financial blessing. Obedience leads to holiness. Obedience leads to holiness. The word holy means set apart. We'll never be completely holy on this side of eternity. But we will continually become sanctified as we are be obedient to God. Now, I, the, God has a ton of different attributes, right? You wanna have a fascinating read, go read a book about the attributes of God. But I believe one of the, the most exemplified attributes of God really is the idea of holiness, Men fell down in the presence of a holy God. Leaders, priests, and kings, they all trembled at the sheer magnitude of God's holiness. The angels cry, holy, holy, holy is our God. Holiness is the key to truly understanding the nature of God. And this is why sin is such a serious thing. It separates us from God. It stands in direct opposition to him. It corrupts our character and our testimony. It prevents holiness. And it grieves the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. To be holy is the opposite of being common or profane. God is holy in that he is completely different and distinct from his creation. His people must also be distinct then, separate from the, the attitudes of the world and actions that characterize the world as unbelievers. Translation of, in 1 Peter 2.9 in, in the King, King James Version conveys the idea of, of separateness, that we are supposed to be different. It says, but you're a whole, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a royal priesthood. We are completely and totally set apart. And that doesn't happen, that, like obedience isn't for material things. As we are obedient to God, we become holy. We become that royal 
priesthood. And those who follow God are set apart from all other people by their faith and by their trust in God. We can see this by our obedience to his commandments, even when they don't seem to make sense. And not, not eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil probably didn't make sense to Adam and Eve. They're like, God, hold on, you're telling me that I can eat anything except that tree? Why would you even put that tree here? Just be obedient. <laughs> they failed that test, obviously. Offering up Isaac as a sacrifice to God made no sense to Abraham as the dad, right? God gave him no reason. I said, hey, put him on the altar. What's Abraham's response? God will provide. But it made no sense. So he simply had to be obedient to God. He obeyed God by his willingness to do so. Even obedience to the distinctions God made between the clean and the unclean set Israel apart from other people in the Old Testament. In false religions, men create their own gods and their own rules all according to their own desires. In Christianity, though, God makes the rules. They're not according to our preferences or our desires, but the Spirit of God allows us to be able to obey those rules, and we don't obey them to become rich materially. We obey them because God told us to. And that's the deal. Like, if you walked in here, like I said, hoping you were gonna be rich this morning, man, it's not gonna be with money. Sorry. But as we become obedient, we become Holy, we obey God because it's what God told us to do. But what does that mean for us then? For us, it means that as we're obedient to God, things won't be easy, things won't be simple, but things will be worth it. Our contentment is anchored in our relationship with Christ, not our material possessions. No matter what the circumstance, we know that we are getting better than we deserve. And that comes from the, the knowledge of being completely and totally sinful creatures. We deserve eternal punishment, but are given eternal life in Christ. We, we deserve to be cast away from the presence of God. That's actually what it is that we deserve. But rather than doing that, he sent his son on our behalf to be a propitiation for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God forever. That's what obedience does. As we are obedient to God, we become holy and we become then content. Contentment comes as we grow to love Christ more completely. Too many people believe that happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction is found in power, in possessions, in status, in promotions, in pleasure, but these are roads that ultimately lead to dead ends. It's futile. Don't believe me? We just did a whole series on Ecclesiastes. It's futile. There's only one road to contentment, and it goes through Christ. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free, and if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.